He has given food to those who fear him. He shall ever be mindful of his covenant. From the 111th Psalm, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Since about the 1970s or so, a somewhat strange phenomenon has emerged in North American Christianity. The popularity of Christian diet programs. Maybe you know some of these. Maybe you've even done one yourself. Loads of books and websites and programs and conferences have all in different and often contradictory ways sought to propose biblical diets, drawing on Christian scripture for guidance and direction. Some have estimated the Christian diet industry to bring in nearly a billion dollars annually. Popular authors like Rick Warren have written bestsellers outlining weight loss and health improvement diets infused with teachings from the Bible. The Daniel Plan, What Would Jesus Eat?, The Maker's Diet, and more have achieved not a small following of devoted practitioners. A number of others have come under the scrutiny of the FDA, received criticism from mental health professionals, even some of them transformed into weird cult movements. Some of my personal favorite Christian diet book titles include, and yes, these are all quite real, The Hallelujah Diet, Free to be Thin, and my personal favorite, Bod for God. There are no shortage, there is no shortage of resources available to the Christian interested in getting slim for him, as one article I read put it. So we can laugh at the silliness of all this, but I think at bottom there is something actually that these endeavors get profoundly right, even if they might entirely miss that main point, and it's this the desire to learn how to eat Christianly. What does Christian eating look like? That, I think, is not an unreasonable question to ask. Eating is central to Christian faith. After all, isn't Christian eating, eating Christ, the activity most fundamental to the life of the church? It is at Christ's Eucharistic table and eating and drinking and sharing fellowship with him that our lives are taken up into the feast of God's friendship and then oriented towards extending that feast into the world. So in sacred scripture, the subject of eating appears over and over again in the pages of both the Old and New Testaments. Israel is given a restrictive dietary regimen in order to mark them as God's elect people. The prophets describe God's coming salvation over and over again as a kind of abundant feast where all shall eat and drink without price. One of Jesus' most iconic and controversial practices was to eat with sinners and outcasts and undesirables. Shared table fellowship between Jews and Gentiles a practice once completely off the table for Jews, if you'll pardon the pun, became not an incidental thing in the life of the early church. It was the sign and embodiment of Christ's reconciliation. As Ephesians says, in his flesh Christ has made both groups 
into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. That reconciliation was made concrete in the literal act of sharing a table, of eating together. And many of the conflicts in the New Testament church that we read of in Acts and the epistles center on divisions and disputes over eating practices. So any close reader of the Bible knows that the idea of Christian eating is not, in fact, as crazy as it might seem. The Corinthian church is a case in point. We can discern from Paul's letters to them that eating has become the source of many of their unhappy divisions and conflicts. Rich and poor are separated at the Eucharistic meal. Wealthy elites gorge themselves on food and wine before commoners can arrive, leaving only scraps. One goes hungry, another gets drunk, Paul says. Social divisions and hierarchies are replicated and reified in the church's common meals. People are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. Some have grown sick, others have even died, and the Corinthian table has become a scandal. Their eating practices have come to undermine their faith and witness. And what's more, disputes have arisen over the permissibility of eating meat formerly sacrificed to idols, which we hear of in our reading this morning. Some argue that their, that their knowledge of the emptiness of pagan worship grants them permission to eat with a clear conscience, while others express shock and bewilderment that a Christian could even be proximate to such evil. And so they write to Paul for advice. How is a Christian supposed to eat? And we might have expected Paul's response to this Corinthian conflict to be rather simple and straightforward. After all, hadn't this whole issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols already been addressed way back at the Jerusalem Council, which is narrated for us in Acts chapter 15? There, in addressing the question of what is to be expected of a Gentile convert to this still primarily Jewish Christian faith, the church pronounced a minimal but clear set of guidelines. Gentiles would not need to take on the ritual and dietary prescriptions of Torah. Rather, it was enough for them simply to refrain from sexual immorality, the consumption of strangled animals with their lifeblood, and the eating of meat which was sacrificed to idols. Likewise, in his letter to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, John censures the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira for allowing the practice of, of idol meat, of eating idol meat in their communities. So what gives, Paul? Hasn't this dilemma already been sorted out? Indeed, instead of simply restating that pronouncement of the Jerusalem leaders whose counsel he himself participated in, Paul instead enters into a meandering and complex three-chapter-long argument, the content of which even biblical scholars struggle to make complete sense of. And we hear a part of that argument in our reading from 1 Corinthians 8 today. Paul draws together a range of issues and images and quotations from a prior letter to the Corinthians, 
all in an effort to show how in this one seemingly minor issue of eating, a whole host of components, we might say the whole of the Christian life, converges. Knowledge, love, freedom, conscience, responsibility, all these complex and difficult subjects enter into Paul's exhortation in this moment, and all are in service of his one chief goal, which is to help the Corinthian church learn how to eat Christianly, which is to say, how to live together as a community of Christ's body. If you can figure out this, if you can figure out how to eat together as Christians, Paul wants to say, you might just discover what it is to do and be church. So Paul begins in this address in the midst of conflict by essentially agreeing with those who eat the food offered to idols. Of course, an idol has no real existence, he says. Of course, there is no God but one. He quotes their own letter back to them. In itself, Paul agrees, idol meat is harmless. A hamburger is a hamburger, whether the beef was offered to idols or not, because the pagan gods are bogus. The idol meat eaters have got their doctrine all right. They got the knowledge. But that's not all that's in play here. Eating is not just an individual activity one does irrespective of others, and certainly not in the ancient world. Eating is a social and religious and political activity, one that is either joining us to others and God and communion or generating alienation and estrangement. And in this instance, Paul says, your eating habits are breaking apart the church. Because eating is not just about, even primarily about knowledge, it is about love. And knowledge without love is not just empty, it is destructive. Not all possess this knowledge, Paul says, by which he means that some in the Corinthian congregation, through former association with idols, simply cannot bring themselves to divorce the practice of eating idol meat from the idolatry of pagan worship. And I think it's fair to say with good reason, because we learn later on in the passage that the dilemma is not simply that people are picking up takeout from the pagan temple on their way home from work. They're going to the temples to eat, to dine, to feast. And we have good reason to think that part of what's going on here in Corinth is tied to social and class divisions within the Christian community itself. We know from archaeological evidence that temples like those in Corinth were not just places of pagan cultic worship, but also the dining centers of high society. So birthdays, weddings, business lunches. If you wanted to get anything done in Corinth, the temple was the major center of that social and economic activity for the wealthy. So many of these so-called strong Christians, as they call themselves, with their puffed-up knowledge, were people who had to navigate this pagan world to carry on their public and professional duties. They could see through all the superstition and get on with business. 
But many in the Corinthian church, in particular, the majority of poor and lower class folks who had little opportunity for such fine dining in the temple courtyards, they had very little such casual experiences with idol meat. Their diets rarely included meat at all, and the occasions on which they might be offered meat would be large pagan celebrations where idol meat was distributed liberally by the public authorities. So no wonder their conscience is defiled trying to separate the idol from the meat. All they knew about idol meat was raging idolatrous worship. So what we see unfolding in this moment, in this Corinthian conflict, is a frustration on the side of the wealthy that their poor brothers and sisters just can't seem to get it. An impatience with their sensitive consciences and their so-called lack of knowledge. And so what does Paul do in this moment of conflict? He relocates the activity of eating, not in the order of knowledge, but in the order of love, of charity. Eating the meat of worthless idols might be a liberty you have, Paul says, but liberty is always constrained by and ordered to the life of the Christian community, the practice of charity. Take care that this right of yours, Paul says, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And the word Paul uses here, it's pretty interesting. This word right or exousia, it perhaps more properly can be translated authority or freedom. As Richard Hayes puts it, it refers to an internal strength and authority to do whatever one pleases. I think it's better to simply translate it autonomy. Take care that this autonomy of yours, Paul says, does not become a stumbling block to those you are called to love and live with. Eating is less about freedom, about autonomy, autonomy than it is about love. And so Paul goes on to describe what the misuse of that autonomy means in the strongest of terms. So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from who, for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when as weak, you sin against Christ. Your misuse of freedom Paul says, insofar as it is damaging and fracturing the body of Christ, it's making a mockery of Christ's death and sacrifice, directly sinning against Jesus himself. This is serious business, Paul says. So serious, he says, that he himself would rather give up meat altogether, become a vegetarian, never touch it again, than cause his brothers and sisters to sin. That kind of sacrifice of freedom, of autonomy, he says, that is exactly what is demanded of us, of the Christian, as a member of Christ's body. That is what Christian eating is all about. Now, what in the world can any of this have to do with us today? What, if anything, could Paul's answer to an ancient controversy over idol meat say to us, today. At the heart of Paul's message is this. 
eat so as to love. Eat so as to love. I think we should be careful not to move too quickly to a more general lesson than this, one that abstracts from that very ordinary and material and mundane activity of daily eating. The gospel compels us to interrogate every aspect of our lives in order to identify the places where God's grace has yet to reach and transform and sanctify them. So I think we have to examine ourselves and our lives and ask this. Is my eating drawing me into communion with God and with my neighbors? Or is it feeding isolation or exclusion or self-regard or the avoidance of strangers? Many of us have discovered over the past year when our opportunities for sharing a table have been so restricted, just how much we miss the opportunity to feast with others. And soon we hope we will be able to return to that joy of the big common table of dinner parties and exuberant meals and good wine, the gathering of friends and family to share in the joy of God's creation. But when we do, we must be careful not to allow our eating to become simply turned in on ourselves. Just another form of self-love, of indulgence. Because Christ is always calling us to find a way to extend our tables, to squeeze in another seat to the stranger. He's calling us to eat so as to love. And this gets at the root of Paul's theology of eating, which is that all our eating, in fact, all our activities and occupations of our lives, are to become, by God's grace, conformed to the shape of that most sacred meal, the Eucharist. Because it's here that we learn how to eat Christianly as we consume Christ's body and so become consumed ourselves into that body, the church, in love. In our Lord's Supper, we learn that eating is a sacrament of God's holy love, a love which sends us out from his table back to our own, that we may always and evermore keep the feast. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.